Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today, I am thrilled to welcome John Luke Kessler to the show. Welcome, JL. Hey, Jeremy. Good to be here. John Luke, I got to call you JL, is the director of sales at AutoServe One. They are a dealer vehicle inspection platform that helps auto repair shops build trust with customers. Uh, we have, I don't think we've ever talked to someone who is selling into automotive dealers. So that's actually going to be one of the themes for today is, is what it's like to sell into blue collar leadership. Uh, we'll also talk about sales leadership in general because I was referred over to John Luke when I asked for great sales leaders, inspiring sales leaders that other people deeply respected. Before we do that, Jay, I'd love to get to know you a little bit. And I often ask about books and hobbies and things. I don't know if I've ever asked about favorite podcasts. So I'm curious, what what are some of your favorite podcasts? Um, right now, I'm listening to a lot of real estate podcasts. That's one of my passions um, and hobbies is real estate investing and kind of helping my team learn how to invest their money as well. The Bigger Pockets one is an obvious one for real estate. And then the Jocko podcast is is definitely a favorite for personal development, kind of human nature overall. You know, from Jocko's podcast, what inspires you most about that? What are some of the lessons you've taken away? Yeah, I think what's so mind-blowing about his podcast is often he brings on, you know, real war heroes to his show. And we don't often gain those type of insights and perspectives, but they actually talk about their struggles and their personal, you know, demons that they had to fight through in and after. Um, a deployment. And I think the lessons that they've learned and some of the some of the businesses that they've built using those same lessons of human nature are pretty eye-opening to to see and and to maybe use as a perspective of no matter how burnt out we think we are, we're going through nothing compared to what these guys had to live through. Yeah, well people might have just detected your Canadian accent, but I, as I was thinking about that, we just had <laughs> a Veterans Day in the US not too long ago and it was it was great to honor the employees of of our company who our vets and it definitely they're disproportionately on the sales team. It does seem that a lot of vets end up end up in sales. Do you think there's a do you think there's a reason for that? Yeah, I've noticed that as well. I would probably say just the competitive nature and the correlation between the the fight to hit your number throughout the year might be an interesting thought, but I think it was the, the first year that I've realized it as well. Yeah, it does. It does make a lot of sense. Let's transition to the main topic of the day, which is selling into blue collar leadership. So many of the guests we've had on this podcast are selling, they're often selling into what I would call, you know, like white collar leadership. They're selling SaaS software or, or medical devices or whatever it happens to be into, you know, into different traditionally white collar businesses. I would have an assumption and I always like to challenge my own assumptions. Like, is it any different selling into blue collar leadership than selling into white collar leadership? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think what I've learned over the last, you know, four, four and a bit years of, you know, leading the sales team at this company is it really depends on the individual prospect. For the most part, I would say overall, yes, um, there's a lot more grit and follow up involved. It's a lot more, I'd like to say, primal when you think of sales, you know, chasing down and, and truly bringing these people to, to the table to get them to realize that you do have something to show them that that is worth their time because they're getting customers calling them all day long that they know can provide them value in trading. For us, we need to kind of break through that noise because you know, white-collar people aren't often getting customer calls all day. It's the opposite. So the opposite side of that that we often see is there are a lot of business-savvy blue-collar owners as well that 
kind of operate like a white collar business owner. They might have gone to MIT, had an amazing career, and then bought three or four shops or dealerships. And so we learn just as much through some of them um, as we try to teach our mechanic oriented, you know, less business savvy owners um, as we partner with them that really don't have any experience on that side. You mentioned the owners. Are you dealing often with the repair shop manager slash leadership or you're going straight to the repair shop owner? Yeah. So generally speaking, we have two main verticals in our TAM. It's dealership owners and it's repair shop owners. Dealership owners, you have the GMs, the DPs, the service managers, any one of those will often deal with. The bigger the business, I think the more decision makers involved naturally. But with the repair shops, they could be as small as a mom and pop where it is literally only the owner that we're dealing with and they have a team of five or six total. What are some of the ways that you know you recommend that they build trust, including using, you know, I, I'm not worried about you selling from the stage here because I don't know that we have too many listeners who are in the market for dealer vehicle inspection platforms. So, so go ahead and tell us a little bit about how, how what you do helps build trust. From our perspective, it's really about getting them to understand, first of all, the consumer is the one who's going to decide whether you need to do this or not. It's not going to be us. It's not going to be you as a shop owner because the trend of transparency is taking over our entire industry. And if we're not willing to give enough information to everyone that comes into your shop to actually make a full informed decision, then you're going to have an incredible disadvantage. Now, that sounds a little heavy hearted. And so it's tactical the way we need to present that. But I think more and more of them are understanding that, hey, if you don't play the long term game, you won't have a business for much longer. And so giving the customer the gift of, hey, we're on the same page, this is the truth about your vehicle, and I'm willing to prove it, I think separates you above everybody else that just isn't willing to, to commit long-term to their customers. It's interesting that you talked about transparency. I'm trying to think about what are some of the ways that they, they're more transparent. I'm, I'm reflecting on other experiences where, right, I go in to get an oil change, and then inevitably, almost every time they, they bring my air filter to me and it's got some twigs or something in it. That I have no idea, right? And I'm just like, yeah, go ahead, whatever. I, I, I don't even know. But I guess as a consumer, what, what are consumers doing differently? I suppose you can now break out your phone and Google, do I really need my air filter replaced or something like that? Totally. And they're you know, calling their brother-in-law in a state over asking, do I really need this? And the answer is always, well, they're ripping you off. It doesn't even matter if he understands what they're pitching either. But you know, I think what we do differently is we we provide everything with digital proof right on their cell phone so that the customer just doesn't have to have those questions. They don't need to think, is this guy ripping me off or not? Just to your point, even, you'll never need to have that question whether I can trust them, you'll know for sure. And I think that's the biggest difference that that we try to establish. Yeah. At Sidebar, which is, I always watch my my language to see wh- where I am on kind of gender gender balance and implicit bias. My implicit bias on on this world is that it's super male dominated. What, what do you figure the mix is, or what have you experienced the mix being in terms of uh, the people that you're interacting with, male and female? I've even found the last you know seven or eight years, and me being this in this industry, even prior to my company, I mean, very very male dominated. But I've found that that's starting to shift, and there are some absolute awesome female owners in our industry, female networking groups. A lot more attention is is starting to increase, I would say. There's a lot more recognition, I would say, for entrepreneurs in our space that are female. I, I think of one shop owner, actually, 
she was basically the top technician. She was just sick of, you know, kind of being marginalized and, and realizing that she could probably do it better than all these guys around her. And so she opened up a shop. She started uh, really investing in objective business acumen so that she can run a business better than everyone else in her area. She started producing at the highest rate in her town. And she started buying up surrounding businesses that affected her business so that she could truly own the entire life cycle, even to the point where she owns the food truck that her guys eat lunch at every day. So it's, it's pretty amazing when you start to realize that the whole world can be your oyster, whether you're male or female in our industry. I wonder if there's been incentive programs like you see this in other places where you know you'll see programs to either bring moms back to work or you'll try to you know empower women and minorities to get into new segments you see that a lot these days for example in the venture capital world does anything like that exist does it seem to be mostly organic in the automotive world yeah i think it's fascinating to watch because for sure the the natural answer would be much more organic than the opposite we are starting to see a lot more networking groups, training groups, awards that are specifically female focused, although not a ton of it. But I think what's definitely true to our industry is that it's very family focused. There's a lot of generations being passed down and some female you know, children that, that are carrying the torch for their you know, fathers or families past generations that now have blown up their parents' business to a level that wouldn't happen otherwise if they didn't have that level of innate drive and commitment. So it's been fun to watch that, I think, on both sides of the coin, both the organic and and lack of. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. The other, the other, I think, implicit assumption that a lot of people make in the auto dealership world, less the repair shop world, but more in the auto dealership world, is that there's a lot of ex-athletes who are investing their money into automotive dealerships. Is that Obviously, we tend to get drawn towards the things that are more uh, newsworthy, but is is that cliche true? Do you run into a, a lot of former athletes who are running auto dealerships? Yeah, no, I'm glad you asked that because that that is often the case. Is just you know we hear these hot stories. I have yet to meet one so far, and, and I've been doing it for quite a while. So I think that there's probably no more or less than than a lot of other businesses. Just like you hear about rappers buying franchises or or wing places i think it's probably equal to that yeah and i guess a lot of times it's probably lending their name i mean i'm a i'm a fan of i don't know if you you have it up in toronto but we have this thing called blaze pizza we do oh uh, you do okay so i think lebron is you know an investor there but i i do wonder sometimes like did they just give him stock in exchange right for being able to associate his name i i would assume that that would be a pretty good trade for the company I was super delighted to go to a conference. This is, you know, obviously pre-COVID, although conferences are coming back, where Magic Johnson was keynote speaker and uh, certainly a childhood idol of mine. And wow, has he built an incredible business empire. So he, I wonder if he may be the the most successful athlete to business person transition of all time. Yeah, him and A-Rod got to be competing for that title for sure. It's It's pretty cool to watch them. I don't know enough about A-Rod. What's he up to in the business world? He's really focused a lot more similar to Grant Cardone now in investing in multifamily, large multifamily real estate and kind of inspiring others to, to put their income passively and work for them without active hours throughout the week. So I know he's got some syndications and some large deals that he takes investment on. He's got to be coming close to the billion dollar mark under management at, at some point soon. 
Well, well, you did mention the real estate podcast, so I guess that's part of it. And and maybe that's a natural segue into how you think about leading your team. As I mentioned, you were referred over to me by by folks when I asked about who they respected as sales leaders and they, and they brought you up. Permission to toot your own horn here is like why do you think you were recommended over? What do you what do you think that you, you do differently than than the average bear? It's always unexpected when you're recommended for something like this and I think it's it's great to be able to see you know, just the commitment level that I've got for allowing my team to succeed, not only professionally, but personally. Going along the, the real estate track, we actually have, we call them money talks with JL sessions. And we try to do them over a lunch where basically we, we just dive deep on personal finances. Um, I got this idea from Jocko, who was actually doing this with his guys in the military. You know, instead of spending your entire check at the bar after work, why not put half of it away? Why not put a third of it away? Put something away because one day you're going to need it. And taking you know, from that I, with my passion of real estate investing, everyone tells me, oh, I want to buy a house just like you. I want to have tenants. But the execution and the gap between the desire and actually getting that first property can be astronomical. And so diving into really their current state financially and understanding, hey, like there is a plan that you can get to whatever goal you want, but there has to be a real plan that, that you're willing to follow. You know, more and more leaders could really be doing their their team a service in diving deeper into these topics because I don't think there is a rep that is is not never mind personally involved, but should use an increase in impact on their personal finances. And especially, you know, whether they're trying to become financially free one day or just get out of a mountain of debt. I think we all can relate to to this topic for sure. Yeah, it's it's interesting, right? And uh, we were drawing a little bit of a parallel to athletes. Nowadays, professional athletes receive very active training in how to make sure that they don't end up penniless at the end of their at the end of their runs. I mean, sometimes those runs are only a year or two. Sometimes those runs are five or ten years. But you know, you hear about these horror stories where somebody who you think, well, you know, I mean, they earn millions and millions and millions, and then they file for bankruptcy down the road, and and now they get they get training. I, I can't recall working for a company where there was personal finance training. I, I mean, I guess they gave it, a lot of companies maybe had the benefit of, hey, right, Liz, you have the access to a financial financial advisor. I don't know, maybe the company themselves didn't want to do that actively internally. Do you think that's something managers, and uh, presumably yes here, but that managers and even companies should spend a lot more time on is the financial acumen of their employees? Yeah, absolutely. And I've I've personally found a huge correlation between you know the level of involvement a rep has in their own personal finance with their success. Because I mean sales sales is a numbers game. You can instantly equate the level of attainment over a year, month, week, activity even based on your ratios into what you're gonna end up with personally in terms of in your bank account at the end of the year. And so it, if you're completely out of the loop with that, an instant activity can feel like it's not completely attributing real success to you personally. And we all want to solve problems for business owners, but I think we'd all also admit that money is a big reason why people are in sales. And if it feels like at the end of the year, you were the exact same as you were at the beginning of the year, I mean, why, why did you sacrifice all of that hard work and effort to basically reset and, and pass go with zero? You know what I mean? I do. And I feel, and again, maybe this is a cliche, but it, it, it feels maybe a this one feels a little bit more accurate, which is there. There is a bit of a of a bling factor that goes on in the sales world, right? That you know, salespeople get a big fat commission check, and then 
the recognition of having completed the deal is powerful, but sometimes seems to be not enough and they go and buy a fancy car or something like that, right? So totally. Why not take that money and keep your modest vehicle and take that money and and start to build an investment portfolio, whether that's, you know, active investing or passive investing into real estate and so on. Yeah. And I think it's powerful because, you know, when you just bring up investing, that's it's a pretty boring topic at face value. But when you can ask the question, what do you actually want for your future one day? And a lot of a lot of reps are fairly young, you know, they're super ambitious, they're just getting into the game. But everyone would agree that they don't want to be cold calling until they're 65. They might not have that energy. They might want to do something totally different. And when you begin to ask those deep questions to reps, the answers are usually, I'd love to probably be doing something different. I love what I'm doing right now. But I think one day I'd, I'd love to be able to, to have passive income where you know, I don't have to work unless I want to. And when you start to see that, then you realize you do need to sacrifice today for tomorrow or that's just an impossibility. I often see that if you were to take a top rep, right, they're pro- if they're making, you know, 2x OTE or something like that, 3x OTE, the odds are they're not going to make that as a first line manager, right? They might get back to making that as a second line or, you know, ultimately a CRO. Do you think that that I don't want to be selling, I don't want to be cold calling when I'm 65 as part of the part of the motivation for for, you know, why to take that short term sacrifice? Yeah, I think it's probably twofold. Every leader probably has a mix of they're a decent enough leader. They should have both selfless and selfish reasons why taking the role. Um, if it's one or the other, you're probably going to end up unhappy or probably losing the job. And I think when you look at it from that perspective, you need to to want to help other people probably more than yourself. Otherwise, you should stay a rep. But there's no doubt that long term, being able to see that the personal growth and not needing to pound the phones is is always an advantage and an attractive one for reps that are good, but one day you don't want to get out of that daily grind. I love your reference to both selfish and selfless motivations. I, I'm often thinking about whenever somebody asks me like what's what's going on in my head and I, I try to disclose both of those things, right? To be self-aware. It's part of emotional intelligence to be self-aware of your own dual motivations, but also the dual motivations of other people. Yeah, that's a that's actually a great point. I'm gonna write that down. How do how do you generally present that when when that opportunity is given is is that usually with somebody on your team or is that even with with a client or a prospect it is more it's yeah there's more people that i know i'm trying to think like if i'm with a client or a prospect underneath the surface they know i want to earn a commission on the sale but do you ever explicitly talk about that in some ways you you're you're actively working to not do that right is i really like the idea of sandler's negative reverse selling which is, I don't want to sell, I want them to buy. So I'm constantly being less enthusiastic than they are. And there'll be times where, you know, I'll say, I'm not hearing that you see the value in this. You have to be careful with that, obviously, but you want them to say, no, 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 no. Yeah, actually, I I do think it's valuable. (laughs) Yeah, that that is definitely a strong tactic for us as well. And I think nowadays, transparency is such a, not just trend, but I think it's a theme that is so attractive to genuine people that if you're selling without it, I don't think you you stand a chance compared to somebody who is so radically honest. One of the things that we even do is present price up front before we show a single feature. And people thank us for showing them, you know, we're the highest price in the market and they thank us for it. And it blows me away to just know how refreshing that is to them when I we feel like it's pretty standard. 
someone once used this on me. I think I've mentioned on the show once or twice before, but it's to say we're not the cheapest solution or we're not the maybe cheap is a bad word to use, I suppose, but we're not the least expensive solution in the market. Even if you don't present the price to say that up front, it sets an expectation. And then as a buyer, I'm gonna say, got it, I understand. By doing that, I'm committing myself that if they come in whatever, 10, 15, 20% above the alternative solution, but I, I feel that the value there is greater. It's not just the, by the way, the value of the solution, it's also the value of them and their organization, right? Do I believe that they are going to help me be successful? That's such a good point. I think, you know, a saying that I often use with my team is that price is completely made up. Someone decided one day that this was the price. But if you measure that against the true impact, you know, in the B2B world, like all the listeners consider, there is impact, hopefully, far greater than the cost, or you probably wouldn't be in business. And I think for us, which we do have, yeah, multiple direct competitors, we often just ask the question, hey, I recognize that we're more expensive. I realize that that you don't want to pay more than any, everybody else, but who would you go with if the price was the same? And if their answer is us, then we simply dig into why. Why is that? And that they may give us three, four, five compelling reasons how we solve the problem better. And we simply relate that to the difference and, and the cost doesn't exist. There's only one clear answer, but patience and the transparency of that, I think, is the key more than just trying to push do it anyways type of a mentality, right? Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Um, I, one last thing before we, because we're running out of time, I, one, one last thing I'm curious about is how prospecting differs in your world than the sort of white collar prospecting where everyone's always on with their mobile phones and on email. And what are some of the ways that you actually get the attention of the GMs and the and the dealers and the and the folks who are you know owners of the smaller repair shops? Yeah, we'll, we'll have some fun with this one um, because when I actually started here, basically our industry was a lot of boots on the ground. Hey, I'm knocking on this this shop or dealership's door and they're either screaming me out of there or I'm having a conversation and, and shaking some hands. I really tried to bring the the inside sales model when I landed here and it was really impactful for how well it worked. But we took a very simple approach knowing that you know in our industry, social selling don't even use the word because it doesn't make any sense for us yet. The business owners that have large groups are on LinkedIn, but the mom and pops have barely heard of LinkedIn. And for us, it, it really is that primal, how many dials can you make before you can have a conversation where you can prove that we can solve a problem and book a demo? Now, some of the creative follow-up after prospecting, you'll get a kick out of because for us, people really appreciate the game. You know, Dealerships have sales teams. So they, they understand what it means to close somebody. They understand what it means to what we call unreasonable follow-up to get a deal done. And so, you know, we even send, you know, a cropped Photoshop face of a dealership owner on a Forbes magazine where it says top dealership of the year award after getting AutoServe one. And we'll shoot that over. And the responses we get, it, it's just amazing to watch how somebody might have been ignoring our 15 phone calls and texts. But now they respond back saying that this is creative. I've, I've never seen that. You know, go ahead and call me tomorrow. Yeah, I think it's a combination of the creativity as well as I'll, I'll refer to it as psychological reciprocity, which is it's so easy to drop an email, right? And, and even to do it, even a degree of light personalization. But it proves that somebody took some effort to think of another human to put their, you know, their face photoshopped onto that Forbes cover. It's hard not to respond in those instances. 
Yeah, that people just feel like, man, I've never seen anything like that before. And so I got to just find out who this guy is at least, right? Yeah, those those tactics do have to change over time just because everyone starts to jump on the bandwagon, right? The videos of people, you know, holding up your name on a on a little whiteboard, those things were novel and effective early on and now you got to go next level on some of those things. Yeah, I think it's you're right. It's not just about one strategy, it's about always asking yourself what hasn't been done yet so that you can blow someone away. For sure, for sure. Well, John, JL, I was going to call you John Luke again, but JL, uh, it was really a pleasure to, to learn from you both about what it's like to sell into blue-collar leadership, but also how you focus on you know the personal side of making sure that your reps are successful. We didn't even talk about success, other dimensions of success, but financially successful and stable, so they don't have to be making cold calls at 65 if they don't want to be doing that. Yeah, no, Jeremy, it was, it was great to be on. I appreciate it. All right, be well. Thank you. Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey, Salespeople podcast.